Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Retrotube, the show where two best friends chat about their favourite television shows of yesteryear. And, yap jokes notwithstanding, usually make it to the end of an episode relatively unscathed. This week is partially broadcast from the new Retrotube Northern HQ in deepest, darkest Cheshire, where it's my turn again to share a television show. And I'm staying in America and turning to the world of 60s sitcoms for my absolute favourite television show of all. It's the Monkees. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the Monkees. And people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. The Monkees ran for 58 episodes over two seasons from 1966 to 1968 and followed the adventures of a fictional struggling rock and roll band who in reality proved so popular in the States that they even outsold the Beatles at one point. Their breakout third album Headquarters spent the entire summer of 1967 at number two on the Billboard album charts right behind a little remembered album entitled Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The television series was equally popular and even garnered them an Emmy. We are both massive fans of the Monkeys music here at Retrotube, and in fact, the first time we actually met was when you came to stay with me to go to see a Michael Mesmith solo gig, which I would like to also call it the greatest night of my life. But Adam, <laughs> what do you know about the Monkeys television series? Were you nearly as obsessed with it as a kid as I am now, or were you normal? And what did you think of the episodes that we saw today? Normal is relative, I think. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, but I do also think that sometimes I take the biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> Quite potentially. So this is a yeah, this is a slightly different one from normal because, as you as you say, I'm already a massive Monkeys fan of the music. Certainly, I haven't watched the TV show since the early '90s when it was last shown. And I know that in Monkey's fandom circles that there are people that are quite contemptuous of the likes of me that feel that if you're a proper Monkey's fan you should embrace and consume the whole Monkey's oeuvre as one glorious, joyous whole. But I am... Um, um, you don't. I don't. <laughs> no. I have all the Monkey's albums apart from... I don't have Pulit, Justice or the recent... Christmas party one, which I couldn't even... Yeah, we don't talk about that one. No. I have good times, so I'm I'm dedicated, and I think I have all the um, 70s Michael Nesmith albums as oh. well. Yeah, I'm fairly hardcore, and as I've, as everyone knows by now, and as I'm very tediously prone to saying, their movie, Head, is uh, in my top five favourite films of all time. It certainly is one that we go to a lot. It really is, yes. And I think I liken it a bit to in the late 
80s at a garden fete in the village where I lived, I, f- I bought an enormous box of science fiction paperbacks, old ones from the 50s and 60s, and um, I just consumed these books. I read loads of them, and I started off with the Isaac Asimov and the uh, Arthur C. Clarke ones because those are the two names that I knew. I love 2001 A Space Odyssey movie, so I read all those books. And then when I got to the Philip K. Dick books, who was a name I didn't really know before, and I read his weird, trippy, mind-bending books, I couldn't then go back to the more straightforward, straight sci-fi Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov books. And I think that's similar to my relationship with the Monkeys film and the Monkeys TV series, Mm. that having experienced Head, (coughs) having watched Head... Sorry, I'm sorry. It's fine, I'm good. <laughs> Having watched Head and taken it to heart as this amazing and almost life-changing film, I couldn't really go back to watching the TV series. And when it was repeated in the early 90s, I just couldn't really engage with it. I found it just a bit too lightweight compared to compared to the film. It was shown on the BBC, I think, in Saturday mornings during the early 80s. So you'd, you'd get either the Monkeys or Banana Split. So it's a, a similar sort of Technicolor, zany, mid-60s American show involving a fictitious band. So I grew up with that. And also around the same time that, as reported in the last episode about Magical Mystery Tour, uh, that uh, we picked up a copy of Sgt Pepper's from my grand's house, my uncle had a cassette of the monkeys the blue compilation cassette which is probably just called greatest hits or something like that so we used to drive around scotland listening to that in the car so that was the second band i got into after the beatles was the monkeys and i probably would have recognized some of the songs from the tv show yeah i almost see it as two separate things so there's the monkeys tv show that happens to star the members of one of my favorite bands but the two don't really meet in my head if that makes sense yeah it it does um because even though i got into the music and the television show at the same time and they are they are kind of inextricably linked in a way I do kind of view them as two two separate beasts because essentially the television show is about a fictional band and the idea of releasing the songs originally was just simply a a a nice bonus um that you know they get more revenue from from the music mm. and that would probably make people want a second series that was that was the whole that was that was all that it was but they didn't realize at the time nobody realized how big it was going to be they thought it was just going to be another run of the mill 60s sitcom when they released last train to clarksville because they released last train to clarksville a couple of weeks before the series aired in September 1966 it just blew it just it just exploded and it became this whole other beast it became this whole other thing but nobody expected it nobody had any idea that it would be nearly as popular as it was it was like Leonard Nimoy becoming a real Vulcan it was exactly like Leonard Nimoy somebody should use that analogy actually that's quite a good analogy yeah Yeah, I don't think anybody ever has that's really yeah I'm proud of you for that oh yeah me thinking of that I think that was really clever Nobody guessed that this was going to happen. So to everybody who was involved in the monkeys at the time, it was just a TV show. That was that was all that it was. Mm. And then the music thing was a whole separate entity that 
you know, came to life in its own and became its own separate beast because of the the, the legal ramifications of, you know, the, the monkeys getting out of their contract with Don Kirshner and Screen Gems, just that that whole that whole thing and what it meant for music and for rock and roll and for for the entire music industry it was just such a huge huge thing that it has to be used as a, as a, as a completely different thing to the show yes and i think also texturally they're very different they, they are because I, I think one of the, the the cleverest things they did was to not do comedy songs so it's a comedy show very overtly it's beyond comedy into like just outright zaniness but the yeah. songs are straight pop songs by and large there's a few silly ones well, I, like i'm gonna buy me a dog i'm gonna buy me a dog and auntie griselda and a few of those other ones but by yeah. and large they would fit alongside listening to love and spoonful songs or absolutely and they weren't just silly throwaway things i mean they got jerry goffin and carol king they got tommy boyce and bobby hart they got jeff barry neil diamond harry, harry nilsson they got so many of the biggest most high quality songwriters this wasn't a tiny tiny project it was it was a proper thing i think what's also clever about this is because it it is obviously very overtly uh, a cash in on a hard day's night that was the original intention it's like oh this you know, these Beatles and they've made this wacky comedy film can we do that can we make that but to do it and do a TV show and have our own band and maybe put the loving spoonful into it or the turtles or something like that but I think what is really clever is that they haven't done cod Beatle music no. so they're not trying to sound like the Beatles and they're not really trying to be like the Beatles it's not really anything like A Hard Day's Night at all apart from all the musical sequences are basically can't buy me love in terms yeah. of them running about at high speed in a field <laughs> <laughs> but but it, yes, it's a very American sound. It's not it's not them trying to do British pop and putting on like a Liverpudlian drawl and trying to do all the production techniques and harmonies and that kind of thing. It is very definitely their own thing. It's it's the monkey mm. sounds and it's unique to them. So that's good. Yeah, that works. I think that's what's kept it a, a thing that people still watch and listen to today. Yeah, and I think it was it was also a very cleverly written show in that. It purposely didn't have any kind of satire. The episodes could... I mean, although technologies and everything have obviously moved on since the 1960s, the scenarios do still work in every episode. Pretty much, yeah. You can put the monkeys on and show and show an episode of the monkeys today to a random child, and the child will laugh at the funny bits that they're supposed to laugh at because it's just funny. No, I mean, the, there is sort of genre, there's the genre spoofing and pastichery, I suppose, going on. So if you don't know gangster films or you don't know westerns or that kind of thing, you might not pick up on all the references. But generally, it's so broad. You can just enjoy the larking. There is an awful lot of larking. <laughs> there is certainly and a lot even of if larking. And even if you don't get sort of the westerns and the, and the mobsters and the... You'll laugh at the funny voices. There's enough personality, there's enough chemistry between the four lead actors for it for it to have run and run and I think going back to the music I think the mu- music was a, a very large part of the reason that it only ran for two series before they assembled a band especially for it they did think about piloting in a an already formed band and uh, I, as I, as far as I know the love and spoonful was top of the list and I think that could have worked but then we would have only have had one of the bands, but now we've got both the Levin Spoonful and the Monkeys. I know, isn't that wonderful? But I was thinking about it the other night that, that the personalities, I think, would have fit. 
So you get John Sebastian, who is the sensitive singer-songwriter, so he would have been like the more Mike Nesmith, serious one, and then Steve Boone, who's kind of he'd be the he'd be the dumb one, and Joe Butler, the drummer, he's quite tall, but he'd be the pretty one, and uh, Zalianowski was very definitely in life and always the zany one. Yeah. To an almost um, Keith Moon degree, by by all accounts. Nobody was that level. <laughs> he wasn't quite as bad, but he was close. He was he was sort of a nine on the Keith Moon level, I think, on the Keith Moon scale. Yeah. I'm glad we got the monkeys because then we can enjoy Monkey Records and we can enjoy Love and Spoonful Records as well. And people take the Love and Spoonful maybe a bit more seriously than they take the monkeys. I think it's quite unfair that the monkeys weren't taken as seriously as bands for the reasons. That I've, that I've already said, like the things, the things that they did, the fight, the fight that they had to make their own music, to to record using their own, own instruments, despite the fact that by their own admissions, none of them were the best musicians in the world ever. I think that the stand that they took was pretty damn punk rock of them. I think so, yeah. And they really deserved an awful lot more respect than they ever got for it because they paved the way for so many other bands to have more creative control and they paved the way for bands to have that as an, as an automatic right, not something that they too needed to fight for. You know, as well as I do, that I could go on <laughs> for a thousand years. <laughs> About how much and you I may love. well. I may well. <laughs> I think, honestly, all my love that I've had for these guys since the age of 12 when I discovered them, I think it's all warranted because the things they did changed so many things. They are literally the precursors to MTV and the MTV generation, not least of all because Michael Nesmith developed it. MTV and Liquid Papers, quite a legacy. Yeah, quite, yeah, <laughs> quite, indeed, indeed. They did have a script every week, but it was pretty much just an outline, and they let the boys just go for it, and they did, and they kept most of the they kept most of the improv in, which was, which was great. Uh, I think in the second series they kind of went a little a little wild with that because I think in the first in the first series it was more it was more a standard sort of we've used this kind of a plot in this other sitcom. It's fine. We can recycle it and put it in this. A lot of them were quite standard. Like they had writers like uh, Gerald Gardner and Dee Caruso, who were writers on things like Get Smart and other spy comedy shows like that. Um, but they had they had a great pool of, of already well-known, well-established writers to, to work with. Mm. Uh, I just think that from sort of the time that the that the Monkeys Television Show came and and the and the amount of things that they changed and they didn't even know really at the time that they themselves were changing anything but the way that things were done has changed from the monkeys and I think that televisually and musically and even culturally I think the world owes an awful lot to the monkeys and um, that's that they Mm. are my boys they're your boys (laughs) they are my Beatles I've always said that the monkeys (laughs) are my Beatles although you say that they they admit they weren't the greatest musicians in the world. I think they're all very musically talented anyway, though. So even if they weren't necessarily virtuosos, uh, lots of people weren't. I mean, most of the Beatles weren't really virtuosos, but I think that all four of them were dripping in musicality. Mm. And it, you know, even Davy Jones, who couldn't really necessarily play anything beyond percussion, he was still a good 
reliable, solid song and dance man. So that's, I think, a very underrated musical skill to have anyway and to bring to the the mixture. And Peter was a very talented keyboard player. Mickey with his singing, um, singer-songwriter. And Mike Nesmith as well, I think, sort of one of my biggest influences as a songwriter as well. Like even, yeah. Even though like the Beatles are my top guys, in fact, the the Beatles are my monkeys essentially. <laughs> yes. Uh, as songwriters, they're slightly daunting mm. to keep up with. So it's kind of Mike Nesmith songs that Mike Nesmith and Neil Innes are sort of probably my two main songwriting inspirations. I would say. Oh, I think that's lovely. Uh, yeah. So th- three of them really were proper singer-songwriters and Davy Jones contributed to songwriting as well and a couple of their albums they played most of the instruments on as well so it's not like they couldn't they did a pretty good job so yeah they the, the idea that they didn't play on any of their albums is a bit of a myth really isn't it it is they well they, they didn't play on they certainly didn't play on the first record because they weren't even formed well <laughs> that was all recorded before they'd even established the band wasn't it yeah they they I think Peter Talk turned up one day uh, to to record and he brought his bass with him. Mm-hmm. The chap at the control at the control desk said, What what did you bring that for? You we're not gonna be needing you today, pal. <laughs> uh- <laughs> Which would be crushing. <laughs> yeah, it it was. And I think I think Peter and Mike thought there was going it was gonna be a more music heavy show than it was. Yeah. Um I think Mickey and Davey because they'd been child actors, and they, yeah, they were more showbiz savvy. They knew what was what was going on, really, and they they knew it was like you know, turn up, stand where the X is, say your lines, go home. Mm. They were quite prepared for that, but I think Peter and Mike expected a lot more, and eventually they did get it, which was which was amazing. Uh, really. And uh, yeah, Headquarters was a huge smash album and they played most of the instruments on that, I think, apart from bass, which was their producer, Chip, who was Chip the Douglas, bass yeah, who was... player from the Turtles. So he was an experienced musician. After they'd recorded Headquarters, because they had made this gigantic fuss about playing their own instruments yes. and they went in to record it. And normally for albums like that, the session musicians will go in and they do they do the album in maybe two or three takes. The monkeys were doing 30, 40 takes. <laughs> so they were essentially making Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> Spending like months doing the one album, yeah. But they were so determined to play every single goddamn flipping note. Yes. On that goddamn album. <laughs> Apart from they didn't play the French horns in Shades of Grey. And they didn't play the bass. And they didn't play the bass. Think I think that was pretty much it. Wow. Everything else was 100% them. Then by the time you get to the later albums, Birds of Bees and Monkeys and Head, it's back to session musicians, but I think it's them choosing the session musicians, so it's much more them in control, and like we'll get our guys in, we'll get Neil Young and Steve Stills and Eddie Ho yeah. and Lance Wakeley and all those people. And I think it's the control of it. Like If you're, if you're yeah, just going in and everyone else is doing all the stuff, and it's like, well, what's the point of me? But if you're, if you're essentially acting as musical coordinator yourself, as one of the band, then at least that's a, a modicum of control, isn't it? And you can get in, you can get in Steve Stills to do the lead guitar because he's your legitimate music mate. Um, <clears throat> none of this is the television show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we watched three episodes of the first we series. We watched three episodes of, of season one uh, because series one and series two are very, very different. Monkey See, Monkey Die, Captain Crocodile and Monkeys in a Ghost Town. What did you think about the episodes in general? I think it's really fun to watch the monkeys in action. and It's, it's fun to watch their chemistry and it's a nice 
time capsule of of TV and the era and TV changing and that kind of thing. Um, which is my tactful way of saying it's probably not my sense of humour. Right. It's maybe a little bit zany for my tastes. So it was fun to watch, but it was rare that I actually laughed. I see. Uh, and I found it a little... This will make me sound really old. I found it a little bit tiring <laughs> to watch. Oh, Adam. <laughs> I needed to go for my lie down afterwards. I needed you to put my slippers and my shawl on. Oh, honey. <laughs> It's been nice knowing you for the last 12 years, but this is it. I mean, I must, I must admit, as with most of these things, there are episodes that I enjoyed more than others right. of the three we watched. That's fair play. Yeah. Because they were all very, very different. They were quite different, yeah. So the first one we watched was Monkey See, Monkey Die, which is about um, the monkeys find out, after nearly getting evicted by their landlord, that they have randomly inherited a mansion from a millionaire who they met briefly once when they accidentally returned somebody else's wallet to him and he was so grateful at being given somebody else's wallet that he bequeathed them their man his mansion. No he didn't. Oh didn't he? What did he bequeath them? The library organ. Oh, is it just the organ? I found it a bit difficult to keep. It was just the organ. Keep track of right. Okay, I was a bit wasn't, confused. It wasn't the whole house. <laughs> I'm I'm very old. You're very old. It's all old. very confusing. They oh, they talk Lord, so, so quickly. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> that makes sense then, because I I couldn't really understand why they. I thought they'd gone to. They ended up going home. No, they didn't. They didn't get the mansion. Right. Okay. Hashtag the girl in it. Yes. Which we'll we'll come to in a second. I really like the production design, uh, particularly of their house. Mm. It's very beautiful to look at, and of course, the ha- their monkey house features in Head. Not there aren't many carryovers from the TV show into Head itself. Mike doesn't wear his hat, and no, there aren't the monkey mobile isn't in it, and there's, there's sort of barely any references. But their monkey apartment appears, so I'm used to it from the film. So it's a little bit strange seeing it also in the TV series in a much more lightweight and wacky environment. There's lots of little details to see and little notices everywhere, and there's like a big stone head outside the door or something like that, a big kind of Grecian head. Yeah, and I I also like that there's a there's a big sign saying "Keep off the grass," which obviously is nothing to do with. The... Yes, being subversive <laughs> even then. Yes. So they end up going to this mansion with various other people to hear the reading of the will, where they're going to be granted an organ. Yes. It, so they there's a fog, and they have to stay there overnight, and it turns into a sort of haunted house uh, murder mystery where the guests are apparently killed off one by one, uh, a bit like the Harry Nilsson song "Who Done It." So the monkeys decide to try and solve this mystery of who's doing the killing. That's right. It's essentially the story. So, yeah, they turn up at Cunningham Manor and they are greeted by the English butler, Ralph. Who looked a lot like Will Self. Very much. (laughs) (laughs) He did, he did. The place was quite creepy and, yeah, I love the fact that they turned up in their stage clothes. They do tend to go everywhere in their stage clothes (laughs) for no apparent reason. Maybe they just don't have any other clothes. They've got, like, three... They've got the same shirt in like three or four different colours. Like Formula One drivers do everything in their race overalls. Yeah, that's it. 
they all turn up in the stage clothes. They think that they're only going to inherit and run. But somehow they managed to have brought their pyjamas with them. I mean, just in case. I don't know. Just in case, yeah. Just in case Davy falls in love with the cute girl of the week. That's right. Which he does this week. In fact, this is the only one of the three we watched that actually does have Davy getting stars in his eyes. Actually, that's right. I wrote down the lines that I liked. There's also three adults, as well as the monkeys and the Davy Jones crush girl, yeah. Ellie. Uh, there's also the, the three adults, one of whom is a palm reader. Yes, Madame Roselle. So the line is, want to read my palm? No, wait till they make it into a movie. <laughs> yeah. I like that line. <laughs> I like that line. Harris Kingsley, who has written a few books about travelling Beverly Hills on five shillings a day. South Dakota, fact or fiction. Yes. All kinds of crazy titles like that, which are really funny. But he's so pushy with everybody, trying to find out yes. whether they've read any of the books that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> it's like me with this podcast. It is exactly. It's like if both of us with, with our podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite bit during all of the introductions is when they finally get down to listening to the will. John Cunningham, who is the eccentric millionaire who's left them this library organ, he's recorded his will on a phonograph and it starts off with i'm sorry i can't be with you but i'm dead and well what can i say except wish you were here (laughs) and honestly i want wish you were here on my gravestone (laughs) it always makes me giggle Every single time. We have Davy falling in love with Ellie, who is played by Stacey Gregg. She's an English actress, and she's probably most known over here. She did the voice of Vixen in Animals of Farthing Wood. Yes. But she's she was actually in it less than I expected, because I, my, my memory of these things, and like I say, it's been 30 years since I last watched The Monkeys. It's been uh, 54 years. 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Back when all this was just fields. <laughs> usually, the uh, usually the girl is the main guest character. Yes, and the monkeys are there to help her. And in fact, they are there to help her in this case because she she is set to inherit the entire mansion, and the grown ups are generally getting a lot less than that, and they're not happy about it really. But she's getting the main bulk of the inheritance, but only if she stays overnight in the haunted house so it's quite a sort of standard setup really so they are sort of ostensibly on her side but she's not really in it as much as some of the others she doesn't really team up with them no the she's not way. and she doesn't even have very many lines she just no. sort of stands there and smiles so it's a very it's a very nominal falling in love this week there isn't actually much connection between davy and and ellie no they don't really share much screen time or anything like that the falling in love is great for the gag that Mickey and Mike share. Davey! Davey? Uh, look, statistics uh, prove that two out of three teenage marriages end in divorce. Uh, three out of three. Four, uh, four out of three. <laughs> He's in love. Yeah, for the very first time today. I remember making, because I have a niece and two nephews, and they aren't a, they aren't a great deal younger than me, because my brother is 19 years older than me so my relationship with my niece and my nephews is more is more as though they're my little sister and brothers because i got into the monkeys when i was like 12 i i forced all three of them (laughs) into sitting and watching i have forced them into getting into the monkeys and the who 
anything after that. They're kind of on their own, but I do insist on those. Right, okay. <laughs> that's fair enough. That's quite that's quite disparate bands, really, apart from the fact that they're very amusing people. They're yeah. Quite disparate. And they're both my favourites. I always say that the uh, the monkeys are my heart, but the who are my soul. Right, okay. Which I, I think describes me. So, yeah, I, I remember watching this episode with my nephew Tom my eldest nephew when it got to that bit he was just weeping laughing pretty much the whole way through oh, really? and I think he at the time must have only been about maybe eight or nine that's a good age for it that's that's it, it is it is a really good age for it and there's there's a gag later on and every time I see it all I can hear is Tom laughing and he go on what's the gag he properly went like me with the yak <laughs> it was like that and it was that level of giggling and Motley style breathing. But it was it's a little bit later on in this episode where Mike is trying to get help and he tries to summon a carrier pigeon. A carrier pigeon arrives and there's already a message attached to its leg and it says, Please don't strap a message to my leg. I am not a carrier pigeon. That's one of the ones I wrote down. And then later on, like the follow-up gag, he finds a load of bones in a closet, which I think is a really, really funny gag that nobody really picks up on. Um, oh, right, skeleton in the closet. Right, of course. Yeah, no, I didn't pick up on that. Honestly. I was a bit hungry. <laughs> well, fair enough. And um, he tries to attract a St. Bernard, and the St. Bernard comes up and he's like, oh, there's already a message around its neck. Um, the message is... There is a message for you on the pigeon. And that gag <laughs> just set our poor Tom off. Poor Tom. <laughs> but every time I watch it, I can, I can just see in my mind's eye him absolutely, completely losing it. And, like, he properly went bright red and could hardly breathe. He was laughing that much. And it always just... It's just so full of joy. <laughs> this particular episode, it always makes me think of our Tom. Oh, I know, I know. I'm a sentimental old sod. I think this is the thing. I think that's the perfect age for it, and I'm not that age, which is possibly why a lot of the jokes didn't really land with me so much, that it is a children's show. Yes, it is. It's not even really a family show. It's a children's show. It pretty much is, yeah. yeah. The one joke I did actually laugh out loud at in this episode, though, was when they hear a scream and one of them says, what was that? Oh, C-sharp. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think it would be unfair of me to criticise it for not entertaining a 46-year-old when it's intended to entertain nine-year-olds. Yeah. I mean, it still entertains me, but I kind of didn't really... Uh... I've not really advanced yet. I'll take after my dad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult to criticise something for being successful in what it sets out to do. And the fact yeah. that kids nowadays can still watch it and be really entertained by it. And I'm sure I'm sure those that see it of that age really, really enjoy it. It's why silent comedy still works, because people falling off stuff is funny. If that's the way that your sense of humour is wired, you're going to laugh at it. Exactly. And the monkeys are essentially playing children. They are. In their relationship with the adult world. So it is, they call them kids and they're playing characters who are in presumably their late teens or early 20s. They would have all been in their early 20s at the time. But the way they act and the way they relate to the world is more like eight and nine-year-olds. So it's, it, it's almost like big 
the Tom Hanks film where he's a yeah. an eight-year-old that goes into a grown-up's body. It's like four versions of Big and they're all released into this adult world. And the adults are quite silly. They're all played by comedy actors, so they're not... It's not like uh, Frank Spencer, Mr. Spencer, please! It's not It's not like a super straight adult world where everyone's really gruff and serious. They're, they're, quite, they're quite daft characters as well. No, because the, the adults in this, especially Madame Roselle, is... Bonkers. Yes. But they're still representing that adult world of authority and rules and that kind of thing and petty ego yeah. and petty conflicts and very, conniving very and manipulation. So you've got these four innocents who are just zany and will just lark about and go bah, 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 or dress up in a, you know, put on a moustache and pretend to be an old man for the sake of pulling the wool over somebody's eyes or that kind of thing. So, they're, yeah, they're very yeah. much sort of doing the kind of things that children wish they could do to their parents and teachers. And when the monkeys do it, they win. It works. None of the adults say, but you're Mike Nesmith, you're just wearing a grey moustache. They do believe that he's a an actual old janitor. Absolutely. The whole thing is completely tailored to that age group. And then you also have the slightly older teenage girls who can buy the music and swoon at how pretty they are. Yes, because they are very pretty. They have lovely hair. Lovely hair. And they seem like very nice young men. And they've got incredible trousers. They don't have the incredible shirts quite yet, but I think in the second series we'll we'll see more of those. Yes. The boys are trying to figure out what's going on with all of these people disappearing and you know, being murdered and stuff. So they ask Madame Roselle what she thinks they should do. And obviously, Madame Roselle suggests a seance. Of all the the grown-up characters, I think she's the most entertaining. She is, definitely. She has some nice asides. When the murders start happening, she just goes up to Ellie and goes, young lady, I wouldn't be in your shoes for anything. This place is full of nothing but evil. <laughs> and then just wanders off. I just had a vision about the butler. Either he's going to take a long, pleasant journey and enjoy good fortune, or he's dead. Which is it? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> I think you can kind of tell the older actors who get it and the, those who don't. Yeah. I think there was a bit of friction sometimes with the, with the sort of more old school actors who didn't really appreciate the improvising and the larking around and how freeform it all was. And so presumably some of them got it and could yeah. go along with it a bit. And others are a bit more old school showbiz who are a bit more uptight about that sort of thing. Very much so. The, the monkeys were quite marmite to the guests. Yes. As I'm sure you can imagine. She was one of the ones who could go along got with it a bit more. Yeah, got it and could play yeah. along with it. There was something a little bit Ethel Merman about her. And Ethel, Ethel Merman was always up for a good giggle. I saw The Monkeys live in 1997, the only classic four-piece intact I've ever seen. I think that Davey did his Ethel Merman on that occasion, if I remember correctly. I know he did it on telly, but I think he probably did it on that gig as well. What's his Ethel Merman? It's basically Davy Jones in drag. Oh, yeah. Oh, you love doing that. So I think I think he did it on that occasion. It's a long time ago now, but it was a very good concert. It's very strange, sort of, like I say, it's the only time I've seen one of those classic bands intact and kind of squinting your eyes going, that's all of the monkeys. Yeah. I'd seen the Hollies, I'd seen the Kinks, I'd seen Paul McCartney and his band, I'd seen a few of the others, but it was always pieces of the band. It wasn't the original band from the time. It was elements of the band with other musicians in there. Yeah. So this was the first time, wow, it's actually them in front of me. I'm in the same room as the actual monkeys. I know. I'm so, so jealous of that because 97 was when you went to see them, but 96 was the year that I discovered them. Yeah. I think it's my 25th anniversary this year of uh, Monkey's fandom. Wow. I know, I know. It's quarter of a century. Do I, do I get a, do I get a gold clock for this or... 
and I really, really wanted to go and see them, but I wasn't allowed. Oh. I know, I know. I was gutted. We got an upgrade. I went with my friend Sam, and we had quite bad tickets, but there was some ticket out on the door who was offering, like, an upgrade for a reasonably small amount of money, and Sam, who was a bit more forward about these things, was like, yeah, all right, yeah, let's do it, let's do it, come on. I was like, all right, then. So we gave him this bit of extra money, and me being as anxious and nervous as I am, I got these yes. new tickets, I thought, we've blown it, we've ruined it. He's got our old tickets, and we've got probably some forgeries, and we're going to get turned away. My one chance to see the monkeys, we've come all this way to London. Oh. So I was worrying, I was fretting the whole rest of the time in the queue. Oh, no. <laughs> but it was fine. We got in and we were really close to the front. We were right on the main stalls. Wow. I can't remember how many rows from the front because it was 24 years ago now. But it was a really good show. And the first song they did was Circle Sky. And <gasps> I think Sam and I were probably the only people there who knew the song. We were like, Circle Sky, yes. And all the rest of the cr- crowd were like, oh, Raggy? Mm-hmm. When I went to see them in 2011, yes, it will have been 2011, because it was Davy's last tour, I went to see them in Liverpool. I was genuinely the only person who knew all of the words <laughs> to all of the songs, yeah. because, it, because they'd started doing this amazing thing where they were just, they were playing like really, really obscure tracks. Oh, brilliant. The intro started to one, one song. And I was like, God, this sounds just like Hard to Believe. (laughs) You won't be playing Hard to Believe at a Monkeys concert. Nobody knows that. That's an album track. Mm. And then all of a sudden, Dave's like, it's Hard to Believe. And I was like, what? (laughs) 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 It was great. They were even playing, like, you know, tracks that were bonus tracks on the CD reissues that hadn't made the cut of the original album. Blimey. Um, like, Like, I Don't Think You Know Me. Like they were playing, they were playing that level of obscure. Oh, I love that song. That's one of my favourites. They sang every single song from Head. Yeah, I think they did when I saw them. Pretty much. It was just amazing. It was just amazing. I know they did Daddy's song, and they did um, listen to the band, and when it went into the organ break, and listen to the band where it kind of drifts off, and these organ chords that turned into the Porpoise song, and then they did the Porpoise song, and that finished and went back into listen to the band. Oh wow! So that was really good. That sounds amazing. Oh, the monkeys are great, aren't they? They're fantastic, and they played most of their instruments they had plenty of time to practice obviously but they did touring in the day they did so of course they had to play their own instruments for the touring so it wasn't as if they were totally inept their very first gig was on uh, December 1966 in uh, Honolulu wow because they thought that if they played in Hawaii <laughs> nobody would turn up nobody would know if it was back between us and trivia that I had for you. My friend Jack in LA has has watched these episodes today and they've been sending me all kinds of amazing knowledge. He's from very near Hollywood and he grew up sort of when all of these things were being filmed. So he has like all the stories and he's a great guy. And he told me, and I did not know this, but you know when they're doing the little romp thing and they're going and they're in the little wetsuits and yeah. in a fountain and frolicking. The fountain in which they are frolicking is more famously known, not as the monkey's fountain, obviously, 
but as the friends found him. Wow, okay, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's good. That's a good bit of trivia. I didn't know that. I was yeah. quite I was quite surprised at that. Oh, no one told me life was going to be this way. I know. <laughs> Could you imagine the friends fountain to be in New York but of course they filmed in LA which is why they all had such a, a hearty tan which I think New Yorkers tend not to have <laughs> yes Quite, quite. My note on the romp is that, I mean, they get a lot of mileage out of those those orange wetsuits in various episodes. They turn up quite a lot. It's very Can't Buy Me Love in places, just the chasing around in high speed. It's almost actionable. Yeah. <laughs> the certain elements haven't aged very well. There's a, a Native American hunting sequence where they're hunting a Native American guy with... Yeah. And they've got guns and he's got a bow and arrow. That's not what I call great. No, it's very of the time. I think American culture in the 60s was so Western cowboys and Indians culture. Mm. And I think just that sort of TV Hollywood violence. Because in some of the other episodes, there's like allusions to executions and like putting Mexican bandits against the wall and shooting them and guillotines and things like that. It was all part of the romping fun. So <laughs> sort of it's a lot more violent than you would get in a, a kid's show these days, I think. Just just yes. the allusions to, like, killing and violence and shooting and that sort of stuff. That's right. It was, it was all in good fun. It's all in good fun, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think there was a lot more separation in people's minds back then between reality and fiction if that makes sense where i think now we're a bit more conscious how these ideas aren't totally remote from each other that actually does reflect and have repercussions out into the real world a bit or to you know to however many degrees yes, quite, that kind of as, thing. as we have seen to the world's detriment in the news i think we have made progress i think sort of recognizing the fact that you make these these jokes and these kind of gags and things don't sit in isolation and it's not just all harmless fun necessarily western tropes that were so ingrained in popular culture a lot of these things just kind of perpetuated certain stereotypes without critiquing them in any way that kind of thing after this whole romping of various levels of appropriateness we find out that the butler and Kingsley and Madame Roselle were all plotting together. Pam pam pam. To get Ellie to give the mansion up. And so obviously, the thing that the monkeys did to just get their own back and stop all this from happening is drug their celebratory wine because, you know, they're teenagers. Mickey's been working on some sleeping tablets. In the earlier episodes of series one, there is quite a lot made of, of Mickey's love of science and chemistry. Right, okay, so he had a thing. It was a bit of a thing in the earlier episodes, but it wasn't really expanded upon towards for the rest of the series and into the second series. And I feel like it could have been like a really proper good thing. It could have been worked into so many more stories. Yeah, giving him an extra thing and get kids yeah. interested in science and inventing and that sort of stuff as well. I think so, because Mickey was... Uh, is very intelligent man and, and he is he's always been into science and that kind of stuff it would have been a nice sort of link from fictional mickey to real mickey he's been working on some sleeping tablets because obviously that's what he'd do just it just so happens that he brought his experiment with him to this place to pick up an organ that he'd inherited davy disguises himself as a knight <laughs> this sounds like I'm making it up as I'm going along. <laughs> which, which is no more than they did. Literally. Uh, David disguises himself as a knight, puts some sleeping tablets into the celebratory wine, and then they all fall asleep very, very quickly, but only when Peter threatens them with a finger gun, and every time he pretends to shoot at them, they collapse. Shall I tell you briefly my Mickey Dolan's anecdote? Yes, please. 
Growing up in rural Lincolnshire in the 80s, I was far away from anything related to showbiz. I didn't live in London, so there was no chance of ever meeting or even seeing celebrities out and about. And I was only back then, music-wise, into the Beatles and the Monkeys, possibly the Moody Blues at that stage as well, but the main ones would have been the Beatles and the Monkeys. They were my guys. We used to go swimming in Newark in Nottinghamshire, which is a little market town. We'd go there every Saturday swimming and then... Sometimes we'd look around Newark afterwards and just roam around the shops. One day we were out in the shops, walking around in the high street, and my mum said, oh, look, there's Mickey from the Monkeys. I was like, what? She said, there, look, it's Mickey Dillon's from the Monkeys. It's like, where, where, where? Look, no, there, there, look, there he is. Oh, he's gone. And this was at a time, it turns out, he he, uh, used to live near Newark. He had a little mansion up there. Uh, He lived out in the countryside. But it was a bit mind-blowing. Like, I had no idea that we were, that there was any chance of meeting one of my eight musical (laughs) heroes at the time. Just happened to be wandering past in this grotty little Nottinghamshire market town. So it was, it was really surreal, and I didn't see him. Oh. <laughs> it's just my mum saying, no, there he is. And I'm like, what? Where? No. That's my Mickey Dolan's non-encounter. That's a great anecdote. <laughs> Thank you. So the next one is Captain Crocodile, which is my very favourite Monkeys episode. Your very favourite one? My very favourite. Oh, that's good. I like this one a lot more. Good. Because this one is actually about them as a band. It felt a bit less contrived as well. I Again, I don't want to criticise something that's working for its core audience, but the idea of going to a haunted house to get an inheritance and stuff. It's a fairly standard setup for romps and that kind of thing, but this is more about the yeah. TV industry at the time and entertainment and that kind of thing. So it's a bit more pointed in a very harmless and lightweight way. Mm. So this is Captain Crocodile, which is a very transparent send-up of Captain Kangaroo, which I know almost nothing about at all. It's one of those American TV institutions that never made it over here. I only know it from one of the songs on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, Flowers on the Wall by the Statler Brothers mentions smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo and that's really my only reference point for Captain Kangaroo at all. I've actually never heard of it so you oh, okay. have way more knowledge than I have. <laughs> so it's a guy called Bob Keeshan. I think I don't have this confirmed. This was just the impression I got from watching it that possibly Krusty the Clown was maybe also based on Captain Kangaroo because it's a very similar idea of this kid's entertainer who on screen is very wacky and then off screen is quite embittered and paranoid. Yeah, I can I can imagine it. It's the longest running kid show ever at the time. It ran from the 50s through to the 80s, I think, with the same wow. actor. So it was, yeah, it was a proper massive American institution that just had no impact over here whatsoever. Not, yeah, it wasn't like Sesame Street or the monkeys even. So Captain Crocodile is this ageing clown-like character. He's a wacky children's TV presenter. It's like a, a live show where he just does wacky antics. Yeah, makes strange noises and whatnot. And the monkeys have somehow got uh, a slot on that show which is evidently very, very popular. But this makes him very insecure. It's never, I don't think it's really explained why, but I think he's just ageing and feels like he's going to get put out to pasture soon, so he feels very jealous and insecure around the monkeys, and he gets very, very paranoid. So he does everything he can to sabotage their appearances whenever they're on TV with him. That is essentially the setup. They get sent a telegram. The, the secretary asks, may I see the wire? So we have the may I see the wire gag where Peter pulls a coil of wire out of his jacket. That entertained me. It was very silly, but that that was quite. That was a very Chico Marx kind of gag. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's like John Lennon said... 
the monkeys are nothing like the Beatles, the monkeys are like the Marx Brothers, and there is just so much Marx Brothers style content in these episodes. You sing a high, huh? Yes, I have a falsetto voice. That's a funny. My last pupil, she got a falsetto teeth. So they go in and they see they see Junior, and he wants them to be on the show. He they don't want to be on the show, so he decides that he's going to get the president of the network involved. So he calls his dad. <laughs> yes. He, they don't want to appear on the show. I mean, they're, they're excited about appearing on the show because they want their big break, but Captain Crocodile won't let them perform, essentially. He just, he just uses them as gags. He puts pies in their faces, but they never get to actually play the music. <laughs> Yeah, this one was the original version of Valerie. This particular performance is famous for the curtain that Davy wore. <laughs> well, at least it looked like that anyway. It was apparently a shirt, and it most certainly had some sleeves. Also, what's happening in this video is that it's a very weird sort of camera angle because Davy sort of comes out of the main group of the band and he's kind of put way more into the foreground and everybody's put into the background. Yeah, he's sitting on a riser, or I think he's sitting in front of the camera on the camera's big pivot arm. Uh, the crane, that's the word for it. He's sitting on the, the camera crane, I think, in front of the camera, so the camera rises up, but he's in front of the camera, and he he yeah. he, he appears to be floating up to space or floating up towards heaven. Yes. This is specifically to disguise Michael Mesmer's fingers. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, because when he was, when he was eight, Mike was hit on the hand with a hammer oh, really? by his friend. They were playing a game, there was an accident, mm. and Mike broke his hand. Because his mother was skint, obviously, at the time, and um, Americans don't have an NHS, he he couldn't get his hand set properly. Um, so it, it, the, the bones never fused back together properly. The doctor said that he was never going to have full functionality in that hand again, and he never did retain it. But the doctor suggested that he learn to play guitar. But he didn't have the dexterity to play that from Valerie. Yes, it's Louis Shelton as the guitarist. To disguise Mike's hands, which obviously could not do the thing, and there were so many close-ups of dilly 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 bits, because I know, I know music, I know my, I know my technical terms, diddly diddly diddly. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's why they had Davy in front of Mike so much. It's rising up. See, this is the first, uh, after Davy Jones died, this was the first clip I could bring myself to watch of the monkeys. So it's just this clip of Davy kind of floating upwards and it was just, I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear oh, to watch yeah. it, it was just awful. Gosh, yeah, no, I can, I can imagine that. I yeah. can imagine that's I thought I'll watch a monkey's clip just to like remember Davy by, but I couldn't. I couldn't watch it. Yeah, I still can't listen to Adrian Believer. Wow. A while ago there was a poll of like monkeys fans' most hated monkey songs. And I couldn't work out why Valerie was sort of in the top ten of this poll of most hated monkey songs. How could anybody hate this song? It's great. It makes no sense to me. Like all the others I could kind of see. Another one will be coming up a bit later. It's a song that I like, but generally there were songs I could see. Obviously in there was The Day We Fall in Love, which is the worst song by anyone ever. <laughs> the worst thing ever perpetrated by a, a music band. Yeah, worst song ever. But Valerie is a very good, straightforward 60s pop song. This is a theory I came up with 
from watching this, I wonder if people just don't like that guitar part because it's very glaringly not one of the monkeys playing it. I, I wonder if there's sort of a thing with monkeys fans, it's kind of like looking behind the curtain a bit too much. It's like, oh, that's clearly not Nesmith. Do you know, I've honestly never heard of anybody saying they don't like Valerie. So we have a little daydream cutaway here of them imagining all the things they could do with their own TV show. And there's some quite fun things there. I like the gag, will the real Davy Jones please stand up? I am standing up. <laughs> Yes, I love that. And the what's my line? Oh, I'm, I might be a weatherman. The orange wetsuits turn up again when they're playing superheroes. Yes, the Batman spoof is amazing. <laughs> the day that I watched this the first time, I'd done something naughty and I don't know what I'd done. It doesn't really matter. My dad had said to me, because I'd been naughty, I wasn't allowed to watch the monkeys when it was on. I'd have yeah. to wait because I was, I was taping it. But I snuck upstairs and I watched it on my dad's television in their bedroom. And I was doing really well at kind of giggling quietly and not making any noise. But the frogman and Ruben the tadpole, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I screamed. I was just screaming, (laughs) laughing the whole way through. It has all like the the, the pow, blam captions, but the one that I laughed at was miss. (laughs) Cretch? Cretch? I remember that, actually. That's the one bit I remember from when I watched it last in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. It just absolutely killed me every time. (laughs) It's just the way way they come in. um, Because Mickey and Mike are being the baddies. Neither of them can can remember their lines. (laughs) And they're trying to tell each other what their lines are. And and, and finally, Mike's like, yeah, nobody's going to stab us now. And then... Peter and Davey come in and Peter's like, no one except for a frogman. And then Davey goes, I'm ripping the tadpole. Ripping the tadpole. Who calls a tadpole ripping? <laughs> Why would you? Oh, <laughs> uh, I <laughs> Oh, just... Oh, so yeah, I lost it, and, and and obviously Dad heard me. And he was like, "I thought I told you not to do, not to watch the monkeys this morning." I was like, "I'm sorry, I'm paying for it." Ah, <laughs> uh, that is why it's my favourite episode. Oh, that is a good bit. Yeah, that, that was particularly good. I think they should just have the whole episode, or an an whole episode, and a whole episode. Of the Batman spoof. Yes, I think so. They definitely should have done way more with that. Even if that's just all you see of the monkeys, I feel like that will be enough to kind of give you the idea of what the monkeys is about. Yeah, and I feel I I would like episodes where the monkeys play more of the characters, so it's more of them and less of the bewildered older comedy actors. Yes. I think it's similar to my feelings on the film Help. Much as I like Leo McKern and all the others, it's too much. Too much Leo McKern, not enough Beetle. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I don't need to see these people. I can see them in any other swinging 60s film. And The Prisoner. Auntie Griselda, which is another hated monkey song, which I can understand this one a bit more because Peter's not really singing in key always and it's very, very silly. But I love it. I love it. It's one of my favourites. Yeah. It's a rare Peter talk lead vocal. How can you hate that? Exactly. I love it when Peter sings. Maybe he's not got the strongest voice in the world, but he's got a lovely voice. One of my very favourite monkey songs 
of all time is Come On In. I don't think I know that one. One of my very favourite monkey songs of all time is Long Title, Do We Have To Do This All Over Again? Well then. Do I have to do this all over again? Do you? It'd be handy if I knew you could remember the title. <laughs> <laughs> we are pretty much Peter fans. Yeah, we're on Team Peter here. I, I was very lucky uh, to get to see Peter talk at the cabin. Peter's talking to Shusway Blues. Nice. Did you meet him? I did. Heather, friend of the stars, Wainwright? I certainly did. And I had a hug. Of course. And laughed at me. Aww. I was so excited. And you know what I'm like? When I get really excited about things, I, I speak so, so fast. And unfortunately, because it was a crowded <laughs> cavern, you couldn't understand a word that I was saying. And it was like, I really don't know what you're saying to me. <laughs> and then he went... Can you talk really broad American like this? <laughs> and I said, no, I can't, but I can certainly do a Cockney Mancunian accent like Davy Jones. Um, fortunately for me, <laughs> he did laugh. <laughs> um, and then I asked for a hug and he said, you want a hug? A wee cuddle? Oh, fantastic. And I went, yeah, please. And he went, of course you can. And he gave me a hug and I was like, ah, I just hugged Peter Talk and you haven't. Ah. And I kind of floated off. <laughs> and, he was, and he actually had to say goodbye to me and I was like oh I forgot to say goodbye sorry thank you and uh, yeah and I was really made up And uh, but then everybody else started asking for hugs because they realised that you can actually just ask for them during the um, they are attacked by the followers of Captain Crocodile. So That's they right. are they are mobbed by uh, a horde of seven year olds. They're menaced by seven year olds, and I think this is which what which is terrifying. This is the sequence which really brings home the uh, the target audience for the show. I think. Yes, I think so. And they they are they are vicious vicious children. <laughs> I mean, you know how I feel about kids. At you, you do have a phobia. I do. Yeah, that one I liked more than the first one. Yeah. But it's very full on. It's very frantic. It is completely it's, non-stop. It's zaniness cubed. If I made a note of all the lines and all the moments that made me chuckle, we would be here for another hour and a half. It, it left me feeling like I had actually been babysitting four hyperactive toddlers and they'd been clambering all over my head. Yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. You see, the, the thing with, with, with me and the monkeys when I first got into them, I grew up in a tiny, horrible little inbred village. I mean, genuinely, in the village that I lived in, everybody's surname was Sutton. Right. I lived in one of those sorts of villages as well. Yeah. If, if you weren't a farmer... Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was one of those awful, awful places. Mm. I didn't really endear myself to anybody simply by existing. And so, you know, growing up was a kind of a weird time for me. So I kind of I kind of identified with, I think, probably the, the target audience originally back in the day. You know, yeah. You, you know, you're old, my older sisters you know one of them had just got married the other one was like in her early 20s and was just starting to you know like go out with all of her friends and stuff Mm. and we were all in very very different places and so I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere and then all of a sudden the monkeys came along and they didn't fit in anywhere either Mm. and they didn't care no yeah your surrogate pals and siblings they were you know the, the monkeys are very much a part of who I am they influence me in everything, in every like the thing, things that I like, the way that I do things, the fact that I decided from from that moment that I wanted to write comedy. I already knew that I liked writing funny things, but I knew that that I wanted to write comedy properly. 
from quite a young age because of the monkeys. Um, they they were the ones who made me, you know, want want to learn more about comedy history and, and stuff. And just the fact that even though they didn't fit in, it didn't matter that they didn't fit in because they had each other and they they kind of believed in themselves enough to know that it didn't matter that they didn't fit in with anybody else because they fitted in with themselves and who they were and they had such a strong self-belief. It really helped me to make sense of who I was and who I am at a very difficult time. Then my boys, I loved them. They were my friends when I didn't have any. No matter how bad things got, there was always an episode that I could watch that would make me smile. Um, There's always a song that I could listen to that would cheer me up. Just even thinking, you know, what would they say to me if they were here mm. while I was going through whatever it was that you go through when you're a teenager? I used to get skittered because because I was into the monkeys. Everybody else was into you know whatever was was more popular in the in the late nineties. Like it just felt like the bullying didn't really matter as much then because I had the monkeys mm. and they were and they were my friends and they were my they were my go to people. Since discovering the monkeys, loneliness hasn't been a thing because I've always had the monkeys. It's a really weird. It's a really weird but nice thing. Yeah. When people say that something's just a television show or something's just a song, it's not because these are the things that save lives or change them or point them into the right direction. Yeah, I think so. I think in inverted commas, entertainment can often be undervalued, particularly sort of in compared in comparison to literature or opera or that kind of thing. Mm. But for a lot of people, it is pop bands and TV shows and that kind of thing, which keep them company and their their go-to comfort things is to be like a, a little bit of solace yes. and that kind of thing. And I'm sure opera is that for a lot of people and classic literature and classical music is that for a lot of people as well, but not to undervalue the fact that a lot of middle and lowbrow stuff is also just very comforting for people and gets people through a lot. Even just coming home from a tough day at work, I'm just going to see what's on TV. Oh, it's Would I Lie to You? No, I've, I'm just going to laugh my socks off for half an hour and feel better about the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good one. Yeah, so even if it's not something that you, like, you know, become part of a fandom or you know, is a regular thing, just, just being able to just have half an hour of laughing yeah. is just good. It's a good thing. It really is. So the third episode we watched... Uh, was Monkeys in a Ghost Town, which I think yes. of my of the three is my favourite. It had a guest cast of three, which was a relief after the last one, which was just so, so full on. This was a much quieter and more sedate episode. I mean, that's yeah. this is the Monkeys, so that's all relative. But of, of the three of them, this is the calmest. We've all had lots of sweets. We've burnt off our sugar rush and our hyperactivity, and we're just we're on a bit of a... A bit of a calm down now, so this is this is much more in that sort of zone. But all three guest cast are really, really strong. They're all really good, well-known actors. Yes, Lon Chaney Jr., obviously son of Lon Chaney, Man of a Thousand Faces. Mm-hmm. Lon Chaney Jr. was the original Wolfman. Of course, yes. In 1941, which uh, also co-starred Bela Lugosi, who is one of my heroes, as you know. So yeah, Lon Chaney, incredible actor with a huge, huge pedigree and just randomly turns up in an episode of Monkeys. Yeah, and he actually does acting. Like, most people don't bother to act in The Monkeys. They do. No. Z- they can do zany and goofy. Most of the, the guest actors do goofy. But he, he does acting. Hey, look, what do you want? What do I want? I want what any man wants. I want a job and security and a home. Yeah, and PTA meetings and cookouts on weekends. That's what I want. Can, can you give me all of that? Well, no. Then 
plays the role of Lenny with a lot of heart. Very, one, very sweet. one of my notes is that American TV of this time were utterly obsessed with George and Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Yes. They were consumed by these two characters. They turned up in so many Hanna-Barbera animations. and all th- You'd see like versions of these characters, usually just called George and Lenny. This will bring me my second opportunity to do my impersonation of Okay, George. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> but yes, these are these two characters. Uh, although they're gangsters rather than grifters or down and out people looking for work, uh, they're still called George and Lenny. So Lon Chaney Jr. plays the big dumb one, who's very charmingly dumb. For me personally, a lot of the gags don't really make me laugh particularly. I'm ashamed to say. But in the case of Lenny, I did actually like the gags that he had, and I think maybe just because he was a good actor who played them well and didn't just. It wasn't just, oh, I'm just doing this trashy kids show, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to throw the gags and not really put everything into them. Yeah. But he he's clearly there and he's being professional. He's doing a really good job. So a lot of his gags actually do land. And George, the other gangster, his partner, is played by Len Lesser, who isn't a familiar name, but he was a big star, particularly in the 90s, because he played Uncle Leo in Seinfeld. So the story of this one is they are on their way somewhere. I can't remember where. It doesn't really matter too much. It's a monkey's episode. (laughs) Yeah, the plots are never important. It's probably to a gig or something like that. And they end up in a ghost town, a proper old timey western ghost town it has a slight twilight zone feel this is often the premise for early twilight zone episodes they will end up in a ghost town and strange things will happen and so it's quite nice and quiet and i'm just i'm thinking at this point oh can it just be the four monkeys in this one please as i said i did end up liking the three guest cast but at that point just have be a bit more intimate just sitting in a car (laughs) just chatting please have a nice conversation yeah just not doing it, just chilling. <laughs> they run out of petrol and they just, you know, wait for the air. So they end up in this old Western-style ghost town, but it's not uninhabited. There are two gangsters hiding out there. Proper ni- For yes. some reason, they're 1930s Chicago gangsters, but we won't worry yes. too much about that. We're in pastiche land. And they are just waiting for the big man to turn yep, up and the give man. them their cut. These guys capture Mickey and Davy and put them in in the conveniently located prison. Yes. And uh, Mickey and Peter realise that they they've been captured, and so they think that the only way to get Davy and Mike is by pretending to be the big man. So obviously, this gives Mickey license to do his James Cagney. Of course. It's very high-pitched James Cagney. Who are you? <laughs> That's rich. Bright boy wants to know who I am. I like that. It shows he's a bright boy. You ain't the big man. They don't come no bigger. This episode, I think, in particular, was very destru- deconstructionist, just to be pretentious for a while. Oh, check you out. <laughs> so there's lots of occurrences of Mickey talking directly to camera and breaking the fourth wall. There's a lot of that. And then we had the caption, stay tuned for Mickey's next idea. Yeah. And I can see why it would really appeal to younger people when I would imagine American TV at the time would be very, very formal. Yes. And even the comedy shows would be very formal and formalised and st- a bit starchy and, and that sort of... Yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of that, a lot of that. There was no fourth wall breaking, I don't think. I mean... I'm not an American comedy expert by any no. of the imagination. I mean, you got you got I Love Lucy, which was very... She's a very big personality, but I think even something as kind of ceiling-breaking as that would still be filmed in a very formal way and structured in a very formal way. So you'd get a big character like Lucille Ball who would just come out of the mm. screen, but even she would have to be in this... Just in this one set 
and it's four cameras and yeah. live studio audience and that kind of thing. And but I imagine most of them were a lot more old fashioned and you know, double breasted suits and hair and curlers and that kind of domestic sitcom. And charming stuff. I used to really like Dream of Genie and the other one, Bewitched. And those. So there's lots of entertainment to be had. But I can see that sort of like the younger people where the parents would be watching those sorts of shows. The parents would be watching Lucy and the kids would be watching this thing where just they're unscrewing television in front of their eyes, essentially. They're just they're dismantling the whole construct of television. And one of them is talking directly to the audience and there's captions that are just to do with what's going on and that sort of thing and the whole thing yeah at the time it was like nothing that had ever been shown before it it was it was such a revolutionary thing and it doesn't really look it now you know it just looks like like your standard 60s tv show but it really wasn't it really really wasn't it was um it was just groundbreaking at the time yeah it also made me kind of realize that head isn't in isolation that a lot of what happens in head is converting a daft sitcom into a disturbing and nightmarish art film but using a lot of the same techniques i may be overstating how disturbing and nightmarish it it is but it's certainly dark and it's unsettling but it's using those zany daft techniques with random captions and deconstructing things dismantling things yeah. and, but doing it in a way that's a bit more unnerving and artsy but it's cut from the same cloth they get caught trying to escape and george is is all her oh, you just wait till the big man gets here he's gonna sort you out good and proper they're threatened with execution throughout and uh, yeah like i was saying before this sort of it, it's quite a violent idea for a, for a zany kid show everybody talks about it like it's it's quite all right <laughs> And then the big man turns up, and it's actually Rosemary. It's Rosemary, yeah. Rosemary, bam. Can't you see, bam. Rosemary, Rosemary. Um, quite. <laughs> that rosemary yeah. trying to make it all the way from a b c d etc. Yes. She appears in in another episode in series one called Monkey Mother. And she moves into the pad and lets the monkey stay with her. There's a moment in that which, even though I have seen, I first saw that episode when I was 12 and I am now 37, it still makes me cry every time I see it. Oh, I know the scene you mean, yes. Yeah, it gets me every single time. Yes, she's really good in that, isn't she? She's amazing. I, I love Rosemary. Some people don't make friends so easily. Now me, I knew everybody in the neighbourhood. Hello, Linda. Hi, hello. I'd call her from the window when I came home from shopping. Uh, that was the neighborhood. You'd call her from the street. So why'd you move? Nobody called back. I would have called back, Millie. You're a good boy, Davy. I watched the Dick Van Dyke show, all five series of it, and I pretty much only watched it for her because she's incredible she's an amazing she's an amazing comedy actress her sense of timing is absolutely impeccable and you don't really get to see it as much as you should probably in um in monkeys in a ghost town but her singing's great she's got an amazing voice which she obviously doesn't play to in the episode she's incredible and the character that she plays in the dick van dyke show is just so inspirational to me as an older single comedy writer woman. I just, if if anybody, any of our British listeners 
ever get to see it just do because it's it's an amazing show it's an amazing show Lenny says to her you ain't the big man and she says no I'm the big woman the big man's wife and George says well what happened to your husband and she goes he got too big now I'm the big man (laughs) and I'm like yes yes Rosemary (laughs) girl power don't you let these men go around getting too big you show him who's the big man (laughs) (laughs) yes so she's the big man or as she used to be known in certain circles Bessie Kowalski she's an old timey vaudeville performer and as soon as she finds out that the monkeys are a band she starts mellowing a little shall we say Bessie uh, and the monkeys start singing songs together, which is beautiful. Mike Nesmith playing piano, which you don't see very often. That's normally Peter's job. Everybody loves my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me. Nobody but me. Well, that's okay, Bessie. Uh, we'll uh, try something a little more up. Oh, good idea. <laughs> During all of these sing-alongs and while Dave is trying to form some kind of an escape, Lenny falls in love with the big man and it's a beautiful time. He's a very likeable villain, isn't he, is Lenny? He really is. We love Lenny. It is the quietest episode of the three that we watched. Yes. By miles. <laughs> it is. It's still a bit zany and there's a big shootout. So it's not there that is a big quiet. But it's, at the end. it's sedate ish. And they do all kinds of gags in between times. Like Peter saying, Oh, we shouldn't be behind the bar, we're too young. Yes, I quite like that one. And then and then they pretend to be moving targets at a fairground. There's an awful lot of improv that goes on and it's it although the the scene does go on for about 922 years. It, it is a good scene that works well. It was all very funny and very sweet, even though there was an awful lot of death being mentioned. Yeah, no one actually dies in this. Fighting. Nobody actually dies. It's it's fine. Yeah, it's all... It's all... It's all good, clean fun. There's a smile on the wind <laughs> as it touches my face. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't do this to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> performed a real public service. Right. They brought me out of retirement. Out of the three, which was your favourite and least favourite episodes? I uh, My least favourite was the first one, Monkey See, Monkey Die, just because the setup was just a bit contrived. Had some good gags, but it was a bit daft. Uh, and my favourite one, as I think you'll guess, was the last one, Monkeys in a Ghost Town. Yes. Um, just because it was less zany and had a really good quality guest cast, and it was it was just confined to the seven of them, so it wasn't lots of screaming kids running about or other sort of things going on. None of that nonsense. And no, uh, no Davy Jones love interest this time. No, absolutely not. And which were your favourite and least favourite characters? If we're talking about monkeys, Mike. Yeah. But I think that I think it wouldn't be fair to choose a monkey. So I'm going to say Lenny. Lenny. On the strength Lenny's of a good one. Lenny being yeah. great and also being played by Lon Chaney Jr. Just seeing Lon Chaney Jr. in something is good anyway. But the fact he put in the effort to actually act and do a decent job of his comic timing. Is, is worth applause anyway. Least favourite character? I mean, just there's lots of interchangeable daft grown-ups and stuff I didn't quite connect with. The monkeys themselves are beyond reproach, uh, but there was just a big, a big kind of wall 
of these <laughs> these older actors in their forties. Yes. Uh, with their Technicolor faces. Yeah, they, they were what the monkeys were playing against, but th- that was the part that felt more old-fashioned. The, monkey, the monkeys themselves and their stuff felt a bit fresher, I yeah. think. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I would agree with that as well. What was your favourite either element of the show or specific scene? I think my favourite element is merely the fact that one of my favourite bands has their own sitcom. That's quite cool, to be fair. Yeah, even though it's actually the reverse of that in reality yes. but one of your favorite but... sitcoms has its own band no it's not that <laughs> no wait <laughs> no, it's certainly not that hang on <laughs> but as somebody who's sort of coming to it more from the music angle it's like oh yeah there's also they're in this tv show it's like having 58 tiny hard days nights yeah and probably my least favorite element is just just the unrelenting zaniness of it there is a lot of zany i think i like a slightly slyer sense of humor maybe or just a I don't know. It's difficult to put my finger on, really. And I did laugh at some of it. And I think also the the that sort of sixties American sitcom thing of just having a laugh track that laughs at everything, even things that aren't supposed to be a joke. Yeah. Just every beat gets a laugh. Just somebody just do, doing an eye roll gets a laugh, or shrugging gets a laugh, or that kind of thing. So that I found that quite off-putting. They didn't have the subtlety of actually just laughing at or putting the laugh track to the jokes. Yeah, in in series two, the laugh track gets ousted, so there's that doesn't sort of. Oh, okay. Oh, that'll be interesting. Um, and so I don't need to ask you if you're going to if if you ever watch any more because you've got to. Because I've got to. We're doing series two. two at some point. So tough. <laughs> In your face. I will reserve judgment until we watch series two. I don't know if I would watch series one again other than just watching something with the monkeys in. Yeah. I think it's one of those things, if it didn't have the monkeys in, I wouldn't watch it. So like A Hard Day's Night is a really good film. And if I wasn't interested in the Beatles, it would still be a really good film. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas the monkeys, I think, the only interest for me is the monkeys. I think you probably have most enjoyed Monkeys on Tour the Monkeys on Tour episode. I know that one really well, actually, because I used to, um, when it was shown again in the 90s, I used to just record the musical sequences because mm. I, I just collected musical sequences of my favourite bands on video back then anyway. Yeah. So I didn't record the whole episodes. I just recorded the musical sequences, but that's one where I kept the entire episodes because it was about the band. Yeah. So I know that one quite well, but I would definitely be up for watching that one again. Well, that's good. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that's that. <laughs> Well, thank you very, very much for allowing me to ramble incessantly about (laughs) about the four biggest loves of my life. It has been a joy, to be honest, uh, to to be able to chat about them with you. Excellent. And and thank you as well, everybody who has listened. Um, Thank you very much for putting up with this. It's been an awful lot of fawning from me. (laughs) We will be back again next week uh, with one of Adam's choices. Would you like to give a little clue as to uh, what we might be uh, looking forward to next week, Adam? (laughs) Dirty old man. If you would like to get in touch with us, then you are always more than welcome to. Um, You can follow us on Twitter. We are at retro underscore tube. Or you can send us an email if you like. We've had a couple of really nice emails lately, so thank you very much mm. to people who have been sending those in. Um, our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. So that is all from me. What's your final word on the subject, Mr. Leslie? Play Magic Fingers! <laughs> yeah!
This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at 10.99. Look for the pink and white cover.